You're listening to ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. Welcome to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems with your host, Northwestern University internist, Dr. Lee Friedman. Spinal cord injuries often portend tragic outcomes and debilitating lifelong disabilities. What hope can new medical developments bring in this often devastating arena? With me today is Dr. William Welch, professor of and chief of neurosurgery at the Pennsylvania Hospital at the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems. Thank you so much for being with us, Dr. Welch. Dr. Friedman, a pleasure. I understand that you work with spinal implants, and I don't even know as a general internist what exactly those are. Can you enlighten us? Sure. An implant is any device that is placed in the body, generally for permanent implantation. In the case of spinal implants, they are usually metallic devices that we put into bones around the spinal cord or nerves, and they're designed to hold the bone in place for another reason. Typically, the reason is fusion. We'll add more bone around the spine, and in those cases, the implants act like an internal brace or an internal cast. They're usually made of titanium. Sometimes they're made of stainless steel. In other instances, the implant themselves will be designed to withstand some forces of the spine or will be designed to replace or augment a component of the spine, such as the disc. So these can be disc replacements or these can be other motion preservation type devices. So this is not nervous tissue at all. It's more the scaffolding for the spinal cord. Exactly. Although we do, and there are available implants that do guide nerve growth, those are available. There are implants that we use in neurosurgery and in spine surgery to do other tasks as well, including divert fluid from the spinal cord. If the spinal cord gets a fluid buildup within it, that's rare, but that does occur. So we have a number of different types. We also have implants that are available now that the body resorbs or absorbs. So they're bioresorbable implants. Fascinating. So it sounds like these are not used just in the setting of spinal trauma. Correct. They're used in the setting of pain, most commonly due to degenerative disc conditions. But they are used in the setting of trauma, even in the setting of infection. Frequently, if a patient has cancer of the spine, as part of the procedure, we'll remove the cancer, but we will not infrequently brace the spine internally with the use of these implants. I see. So just palliative radiation to spinal metastases, that's often not adequate. Correct. It's frequently not adequate if patients are experiencing a great deal of pain. Many of those patients have pain because of bony destruction and compression of nerves or irritation of nerves and other bony elements because of the tumor. So we like to remove as much of the tumor as we can and then reinforce the spinal elements around the spinal cord and nerve roots. Again, as an internist, I see a lot of octogenarians, older people with spinal stenosis. Is this an area where there's some applicability? Exactly. We uh, do have now available to us implants that are easier to insert than some of the traditional screws and rods that we've put in. So for patients who have severe stenosis, lumbar stenosis, narrowing of the spinal canal of the lumbar canal, one device that is available now is called the X. Stop. That's a device that gets inserted into the posterior, the back part of the spine, and it's designed to separate the posterior spinous processes, the elements of the posterior aspect of the spinal column. What it probably does is 
very subtly induces mild flexion as though the patient were bent forward. What that, in effect, does is it stretches the ligaments surrounding the cauda equina and increases the cross-sectional diameter of the spinal canal at that level, usually about L4, L5. So this is a device that is put in between the spinous processes? Exactly. And it takes that pressure off the cord, the nerve tissue? Right. That's the hope. Sometimes some of these patients are debilitated and in other ways have other medical comorbidities. Is this a very involved procedure or is it something that would be available to people with comorbidities? It probably is reserved for people with comorbidities since we have other very good techniques to treat lumbar spinal stenosis. But if I do see a, you know older person or even a younger person just with a tremendous number of medical comorbidities and other medical problems who I think would otherwise would have benefited with a decompressive laminectomy, say, I will offer them this device or a device similar to it. So in the setting of spinal stenosis, you mentioned in uh, metastatic cancers, in trauma patients, how would these be used? The X-stop device wouldn't be used, but more standard implants are used frequently to stabilize the spine and to help promote fusion while the bone from the traumatic event occurs. Also, of course, by stabilizing the spinal column around the area of the spinal cord injury, one hopes that one will uh, reduce or eliminate the secondary damage to the nerves and spinal cord from the initial trauma. If you've just tuned in, you're listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Lee Friedman, and with me is Dr. William Welch, Chief of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania, and we are discussing spinal implants to help with various types of spinal problems. In the setting of spinal trauma, are these implants used acutely or only after there's been time for inflammation to settle later down the road? Very good question. It depends. And there is no clear-cut answer to that. There are no clear-cut studies that show that, say, in the course of treating somebody who's had a cervical spinal cord injury, that treating that person immediately or urgently will have afford the patient a better outcome than treating them a few days later or even a few weeks later. However, there is a general trend to insert the uh, implants as soon as is medically feasible, I think would be the best way to say it. So if we see a patient, say, with a fracture subluxation of the cervical spine, in general terms, once the patient is medically stabilized, assuming it's in a reasonable time of day or night, we will generally proceed with the stabilization procedure. It seems that we're talking about titanium or stainless steel. What's the long-term outcome in terms of functionality, flexibility for these patients? Typically, if we're only going to fuse one and sometimes even two levels, the patients won't notice any loss of mobility. There are a few studies now, say, for lumbar fusion, doing a one-level lumbar fusion. Patients actually experience an improvement in lumbar mobility. That's simply because the patients get pain relief, so they're more willing to bend their spine forward and backwards. A concern is, though, that once you fuse one level or two levels, biomechanically you are offloading forces from the area of fusion to the area of movement. There is some suggestion to suggest that does cause a more rapid wear of the adjacent level so that many of those patients, you will see them have 
problems at the level immediately above the fusion. We call that adjacent segment disease. And that's something that happens on the time frame of years? Typically. I quote patients about a 4% risk per year per patient. But typically, if you see it a few years down the line, that, of course, begs the question, is this a natural degenerative change or is this an acceleration of what would otherwise have been a natural event? The answer is nobody really knows. You know, when we see a patient who has, say, a lumbar degenerative disc at one level, it's very common that they already have early degenerative changes at the other level. For patients that need multiple level treatment, are there any new developments that preserve motion? There are a few now. The one I've been most involved with is called Denesis. This is a pedicle screw-based system, which is something that spine surgeons are very comfortable with. We do thousands of these. But the connections between the screws, instead of being rigid rods, can be a type of flexible rod, if you will. And there are many variations, and a number of other companies have come out with similar type devices. But the whole idea is that you augment the ligaments and the natural strength of the spine with these devices as opposed to fusing. Now, these devices are approved for fusion. They can be made fairly stiff, and if you put bone around them and if you support the front of the spine with an interbody spacer, you can certainly can get a solid fusion at that level if you want. But most of the time when we use these devices, we are attempting to reinforce or augment the spine without necessarily getting a solid fusion. We do, not uncommonly today, a hybrid construct, we call it, where, uh, as I mentioned earlier, if you see a patient who has a major problem at one level but a you know, minor or moderate problem at the associated level, we'll do a fusion at the one level, which is what we would have done anyway, but instead of extending the fusion to the next level or doing nothing at the next level, we'll insert one of these type devices in the hopes that we will preserve that level for as long as possible. That's very interesting to me. It, tell me a little bit about the timing. It, it seemed to me that you implied that with some of these, at least, there may be a two-stage process where the implant is put in to stabilize and then later the fusion is done. Typically with these type devices, the motion preservation devices, it'll be done in one shot, but the fusion will be done at one level, but you'll use the same device and just simply extend it up to the less pathological level and not do a fusion. It's a change in concept for surgeons because typically anytime we used implant devices in the spine, it was to create a fusion. So we would do an instrumented fusion, screws, rods, and the such to support a fusion. Here we're doing instrumentation, but not necessarily with a fusion. We're doing instrumentation for the purposes of motion preservation. Although, again, we can use that same device for the purposes of fusion, or we can use it as a combination, the hybrid, in the same patient at the same sitting. And then it sounds like after the surgery, the rehabilitation phase must be very important to achieve optimum success. Remarkably, with the devices we use and with the surgeries that we use today, for the most part, the patients have a fairly limited rehabilitation course. Specifically, we don't routinely send them to rehabilitation. Most patients go home within about two days or so, assuming there are no other issues. The patients I do fusions on now, I typically don't even place in a back brace because the rods and screws are so strong. We typically just encourage them to walk to limit their weight. They can drive after about two weeks or so. 
So it's a fairly limited course of rehabilitation for the most part. Now, if the patients have a heavy-duty type job, we usually try to delay their return to work. But if they have a sedentary or light-duty type job, we'll let them go to work as early as four weeks or six weeks. Well, I want to thank Dr. William Welch, the Chief of Neurosurgery at the University of Pennsylvania Hospitals, for describing for us some uses of spinal implants and how they can change the treatment and the outcomes for patients with a variety of spinal problems. You've been listening to Medical Breakthroughs from the University of Pennsylvania Health Systems on ReachMD XM157, the channel for medical professionals. To learn more about this or any other show, please visit us at ReachMD.com, where you can also register and sign up for access to our on-demand features. Thank you for listening.